This morning we'll be studying verses 1 through 6 of 1 Peter chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So we've been studying the book of 1 Peter, and for the last three weeks we're in this series on suffering. And a couple of weeks ago we looked at suffering and witness. And basically what we said is that uh, in our suffering, God gives us an opportunity for witness. And Peter gave us three life principles for, for how to suffer well and to witness well. If you, got, if you can remember, it was all about preparation. He basically said, you know, um, be prepared. Prepare yourself for witness. Prepare yourself um, for your way of life. Prepare yourself in a way that you can give God glory and other people eternal life by the way that you suffer. In verses 18 to 22 last week, which was somewhat of a complex passage, we titled it Suffering and Salvation. And essentially in that passage, Peter says, listen, Jesus suffered. And, and people looked at him and thought, well, what a defeat, what a failure. But he says, no, it's not a failure. His suffering was ultimately victory and triumph that all powers and principalities and angels have been brought under subjection under him because not only did he suffer and die, but he also was resurrected from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And in the same way that his suffering was ultimately victory, your suffering also can be victory if you embrace it for the glory of Christ. And on that note, as I was meditating on that passage leading up to this one, I think the vein uh, that Peter is speaking, I think that he would say something like, if you get cancer, you need to know that Jesus had the power to prevent it. But he didn't, because he knows that he has the power to do something greater through the cancer. He has the power to heal you from that cancer, or he also has the power to demonstrate his sufficiency through your cancer, or he has the power to even win other souls to Christ through your experience of cancer, if you suffer in the way that I'm encouraging to suffer. But if you lose your job, you need to know that Jesus could have, could have prevented you from losing your job. Because all powers and principalities and angels have been brought underneath his power. He has that authority. He has that ability. But in you losing your job, it means that Jesus has the power to sustain you through it. He has the power to use it for the gospel's sake. He has the power to give you something different sometimes something even better. But I think more to, to Peter's point is that if you lose a friendship because of the gospel, 
In other words, if you preach the gospel and your friend is not a Christian and they don't like you anymore, they don't want to be around you anymore because of the offense that you have created, Peter would say, you know, Jesus could have prevented that. He could have, but he didn't because he wants to show his power through that. Okay, this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of point that, that Peter's trying to make as we launch into verses 1 through 6. And today's message is called Suffering and Holiness. So we've had suffering and witness, suffering and salvation, and now we have suffering and holiness. Peter talks to us about our way of life in the midst of our suffering. He tells us what kind of mindset to have. He tells us what kind of lifestyle to live. And he, he tells us what kind of determination to possess. That's what he tells us. Okay, this, this message is a very practical and hands-on, everyday Christian kind of message that Peter is giving to us right here in verses 1 through 6. It's not the theoretical, it's not super theological, all right? It's this is how you need to live as you suffer for Christ and for the sake of the gospel. Now, if you look down at verse 1, the key idea that drives the entire section here is the instruction that he gives, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Arm yourselves also with the same mind. This, this phrase, arm yourselves, literally means to equip yourself for battle. It was used by military leaders in the preparation for war. The military leaders would say, okay, get your chariots ready. Get your horses hooked up. All right, put the, put the bridles in their mouths. Get the whip, load the spears, put on your breastplate, your helmet, your belt. Get your battle sandals on. Grab your sword. Arm yourselves for battle. And so Peter says, arm yourselves with the same mind. Which is to say, arm yourselves with the same purpose, the same commitment, the same resolve. All right? Peter's call here is a call to be equipped and resolved, to have the unwavering commitment of a soldier going into battle. I've been watching a documentary called Rome, The Power and Glory. If you've ever seen that, I think it's a History Channel production. Um, I've been watching it, and one of the things that they say in that production is that Rome was so successful in conquering other nations because a Roman soldier never hurt, turned his back on the battle. Never turned around and retreated, ever. If he did, not only would he be um, brutalized and killed, but his entire group would be. So it could be a, a group of 100 men. If one turned their back and retreated, everybody was going to suffer. And they knew that. That was a lot of pressure. So they never turned their back. And Peter, living uh, in the Roman Empire, says, you also be resolved with the same mind, with the same commitment, that you're not going to turn your back on the battle that Christ has you in, but you press forward, always going forward in what he has for you. And so I, this is what I have for you today. A life of holiness in the midst of hostility requires three areas of resolve. A life of holiness in the midst of hostility requires three areas of resolve. I'm going to give them to you. You're not probably going to be able to take it all down, but I don't, again, want you to be guessing what they are. First of all, you've got to be resolved to suffer hardship for the sake of the gospel. Be resolved to suffer hardship for the sake of the gospel. Be resolved to redeem your time for the sake of the gospel. And be resolved to endure hostility for the sake of the gospel. All right? Suffer hardship, redeem the time, and endure hostility. 
We find the very first one, be resolved to suffer hardship for the sake of the gospel in verse 1. Peter says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. All right, so he's pointing to Christ. When he says arm yourselves with the same mind, he's saying the same mind, the same purpose, the same resolve that Jesus had. All right, so we need to make an observation or just observe a reality, and that is that Jesus was not an ignorant victim who was betrayed and, and, and brutalized and beaten and bloodied because he was caught off guard and had no way to change the circumstances. Was Jesus an innocent victim? Absolutely. But he was not an ignorant victim. All right? He, he, uh, he knew suffering was coming and he prepared for it. He prepared for it and he embraced it and he resolved himself to endure it. What I would like, if you've got your Bibles open, I'd like for you to go back to Matthew chapter 16. We can see Jesus resolve to suffer and to endure suffering and to suffer hardship all over the Gospels. I mean, it's, it's everywhere, but I just want us to look at one closely. Matthew chapter 16. Now, so this is a fascinating passage. And if you, if, whenever you read this passage for the very first time, many of you have read it probably a hundred times, but when you read it for the first time, it's an amazing passage because like beginning in, in verse 13, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples are like, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets, but people really don't know who you are, all right? And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who has spiritual eyes, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Like Peter knew this. Like You're the Messiah. You're the one who's been promised in the Old Testament passages. We know who you are. You're, you're from God. You belong to God. You represent God. You are going to be our Savior. You're going to be our Deliverer. All right? And, and Jesus is like, absolutely. You're exactly right. Look at what he says in 17. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood hasn't re- revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I say that you Peter. And on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded the disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Then look at verse 21. Just because Peter understood that Jesus was the Messiah didn't mean that, that he understood that Jesus was going to suffer. So look at what happens from that time jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day then peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying far be it from you lord this shall not happen to you he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. I want you to put your eyes back down to verse 21. Because I want you to see the kind of mindset that Jesus had to endure suffering, to suffer hardship. 
And no doubt Peter, as he writes chapter 4, verse 1, has this interaction in mind. Because verse 21 says that Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed. Theologians call this must right here the divine necessity. The divine necessity. Whenever it's used about Jesus and whenever this phraseology is used, it means that it was an imperative from the kingdom of heaven that there was no other way. There was no other way. Jesus um, was, was compelled by God himself. Let me tell you something, y'all. God the Father had no plan B. There was no alternative. This was not a multiple choice option. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Why Jerusalem? All right. Jerusalem was known as the city of God. It was the place in which all Jews loved and flocked to annually, if not multiple times per year for celebrations and sacrifices. But it was also the place in which the greatest hatred and the greatest hostility against Jesus dwelt. All right. And so Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the place where sacrifices are made and I am going to be the ultimate Passover sacrificial lamb for my people. This is how I am going to purchase my people. And so he must go to Jerusalem. But he said he, he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and, and the scribes. This is better known as the unholy trinity. These three groups of people. All right. It's the Sanhedrin. All right, and they could not stand Jesus. But their headquarters were right here in, here in Jerusalem, and they were fixated on getting rid of him. And even though Jesus doesn't go into detail right here about his suffering, essentially he is going to be betrayed, he is going to be brutalized, he is going to be mocked, he is going to be ridiculed, he's going to be scourged, he's going to be handed over to the people, and then he's going to be humiliated in front of everyone. But he said, this must happen. I'm fixed my mind on it. I know it's going to be difficult. I know it's going to be near impossible, but I am fixing my mind. I'm resolving myself to suffer. And then he says to be killed as well. All right. And so he resolves himself not only to suffer, but also to be killed. And then he says, I'm resolved to be, um, to be resurrected on the third day. But the thing is this, is that the disciples didn't hear that part. Because they were so taken aback by the, the reality that their Messiah was going to suffer and be killed. They didn't have a paradigm for that. And so they didn't even really hear it. All right? But the point is this, is that Jesus was resolved to endure suffering, to suffer hardship. Now, why? Because the souls of men were at stake, the glory of God was at stake, and his life mission was at stake. If he did not resolve himself to do those things, then his mission would be rendered fruitless or pointless. And I think that's why Luke 9.51 shows us the kind of attitude that Jesus had. Let me read that to you. When the time had come for Jesus to be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And it's kind of that same idea of a Roman soldier never turning back. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He didn't look to his right. He didn't look to his left. And he didn't look behind him. He set his face toward it. He resolved himself to suffer hardship for the sake of producing the gospel. The gospel. All right, so Peter is drawing on that unforgettable experience that he has with Jesus in that moment. 
And he's saying to you Christians, arm yourself with the same mindset that Jesus had. Arm yourself with the same mindset that he showed us in Matthew chapter 16. All right? Be resolved to complete the mission that God has for you. Now, Jesus preached the same message. You know that uh, in that passage, if we'd have kept reading in Matthew 16, but also in Luke 9, he says that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must do what? Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow after me. For if anybody wishes to save his life, all right, shall lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, he is the one who will save it. This was the very message that Jesus preached, that if you wanted to be a follower of his, you have to be willing to endure suffering, willing to endure hardship. Now, I want to translate Jesus' message and, and Peter's message for you. And that is that if you came to Christ with no understanding that suffering was going to come, then you came to him under false pretenses. All right? Because this is the essential message of the gospel, that when we believe it, the kind of suffering that was heaped on him is in some way, shape, or form going to be part, partly ours as well. All right? Now, if you look back down at, at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, a lot of people have, have gotten confused about what Peter says here, about for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I don't think it's really all that complicated. The reason I don't think it's complicated is because following the flow of the argument, he's saying this. If you suffer hardship for the sake of the gospel, that means you're loving the gospel. You're living out the gospel. And if you're loving the gospel and living out the gospel, then you've ceased from sin. I mean, it doesn't mean that you've been made perfect. But in other words, you have said, I don't want to give in to the pressures of this world. I don't want to compromise my faith. I want to walk holy. I want to walk purely. I want to walk just like Jesus walked. And I'm willing to endure whatever suffering there is that comes. That's that's the idea. All right. In other words, he's encouraging them. For those who are willing to suffer hardship, it's a sign that they were willing to cease from their sinful life. Listen, it's the pattern of Hebrews 12. And many of y'all have Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 memorized. But, but the writer of the Hebrews says, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us let set aside every weight, the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Listen to verse 2, you guys. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, he endured suffering. So, there's some truths here that we need to understand and embrace. The first one is this, is that your suffering is not unrelated to the suffering of Jesus. Write that down if you're taking notes. Your suffering is not unrelated to the suffering of Jesus. Think about this. He suffered to bring you to God. You suffer because you've been brought to God. All right? He suffered to demonstrate His love for you. You suffer because His love for you is sufficient. 
Now, this is the point. See, if, if his love for you wasn't sufficient, then you would compromise your Christian faith. You would say, I'm just going to go the way that the Gentiles go. I'm going to go the way that they live because I don't really want to suffer. But because his love for me is so great and it is sufficient in my life, I'm willing to suffer. See, there's a direct connection. He suffered to give you the forgiveness of sins and you suffer because you've been forgiven of your sins. He suffered to give you eternal life. You suffer because you have eternal life. He suffered to free you from the bondage of sin. You suffer because you've been freed from that bondage. And I think that this is the most important one. He suffered to unleash the power of the gospel into the world. And you suffer to demonstrate the power of the gospel to the world. Okay, in other words, Jesus suffered to produce the gospel. You suffer to demonstrate the power of the gospel that he produced. Our suffering is not unrelated to Jesus' suffering. And so my question to you guys, as far as practical nature is, is what suffering has God called you to experience? What suffering has he called you to endure? And to say, you know what, I'm going to set my face toward this, just like Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, and I'm going to endure it for the sake of the gospel, that I might demonstrate the sufficiency of the gospel, the glory of the gospel, and the ultimate honor of being named with christ for the sake of the gospel because your suffering is not unrelated so i'm telling you the first resolve that we must have is is to to endure suffering suffering hardship the second one is to be resolved to redeem the time for the sake of the gospel we see this in verses two and three that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men but for the will of god we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. I want to give you a little historical context here. First century Roman citizens viewed uh, Christians as cosmic killjoys. As a matter of fact, they were known as... Uh, Christians were known as haters of humanity and traitors to the Roman way of life. What is, what is that all about? Why? All right. Well, this is the thing. Romans loved the theater. All right. And the theater was mostly composed of the glamorization of some type of sexual immorality. There were often good stories. There were often, you know, Greek mythology that was involved, but it was also risque in nature. All right. But they loved it. That was key to them. They loved the gladiator battles. In particular, the ones that were in the Colosseum. They loved the violence, the blood, the gore, the death. They loved to see the triumph of one person or one group of, of people over another all the way unto death. They, they got a kick out of that. They got their jollies off of witnessing that. If you've ever studied Rome, you know that. Many Romans, if not most of them, engaged in sex outside of marriage and frequent drunkenness and parties that promoted both of those at the same time. All right, this was, this was Rome, all right? They also burned incense at regular events in homage and in honor to the emperor. This is what they did. This was their nature. This is what it meant, essentially, to be Roman, all right? And so Christians, they, they didn't do those things because of the nature of those things, because, because sin was the centerpiece of those activities 
Christians say we're not going to be a part of that. We're, we're not going to go to the theater. We're not going to go to the gladiator games. We're not going to go to the drinking parties. We're not going to engage in sex outside of marriage. We're not going to engage in drunkenness because, you know, this is where Peter is actually, I think, going without mentioning it, is because the gospel had transformed their lives and they saw through what all of those things actually are. And that's what I want to talk to you about right now. The gospel gets underneath the Roman way of life just like the gospel gets underneath our 21st century Western civilization way of life. All right? It makes believers ask the question, why? Why are you so committed to the theater that glamorizes sexual immorality? Why are you fascinated and mesmerized with violence and blood and gore and death? Why do you live to get drunk? Why do you long for sexual escapades? Why are you so enthralled with the Roman emperor? The answer is because without those things, you don't have anything else. Without theater, you've got no fantasies to escape to. Without the gladiator games, your lust for immortality isn't quenched. Without drunkenness and sensuality, you can't escape the reality of your everyday life. You can't escape the emptiness and hollowness of life without God. You see, all of these activities just put a mask on the real need of the human heart. So I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. Every human being in the world is created for glory. We're, cre we're created to experience infinite beauty and excellence of divine glory. We're created to experience it, to enjoy it, to reflect it. But what happens is, is our indwelling sin corrupts our understanding and our pursuit of glory. And so we, we, we have a mask over our eyes and what we see outside are things that are glorious and wonderful and beautiful and excellent to ourselves, but in reality, they're nothing but an artificial imitation of what real glory actually is. All right, but the thing is this, is the human DNA is wired for glory. Look, you and I don't have the, the option to be non-glory seekers. All right, because we're, we're wired for glory. It's just that, that most people don't pursue real glory because their sin is keeps them from seeing the excellence, the beauty, the infinite greatness of our God. I want to illustrate this by telling you that I went to New York City in the mid-1990s as a college student. Went with a couple of friends uh, just driving from Toronto over to New York before we went down to Alabama. And we were at Times Square one night. And as we were on the street corner, there was a guy selling authentic Oakley sunglasses out of a suitcase. And, uh, and so uh, I'll be honest, I was uh, 20 years old and I had always wanted Oakley sunglasses. Oakley had surpassed Ray-Ban at the time as the premier cool sunglasses, all right? And so I never could afford them. But here I see these Oakley sunglasses and he's selling them for $10. All right. And so I've got to have the pair of Oakley sunglasses. I'm 20. I'm in college. I play baseball. I want that experience of having a pair of Oakleys. And so I gave him $10. He gave me the pair of glasses. He didn't give them to me in a box. He didn't give a receipt. There was no warranty uh, or anything of that nature. But I got them and I started wearing them. And, and, I, and I've had the experience of wearing the Oakleys for about a month. And then they just broke. I didn't step on them or anything. They just bent and they broke. All right. And and I will tell you, um, I was looking for 
this experience of, I guess you would call it a miniature experience of glory. But instead of going after the real thing, I went for the imitation. And the ultimate result was an, was an inauthentic, artificial experience of what I really wanted. All right. So when we think about drinking parties, revelries, gladiator games, lewdness, lust, and all of the things that he mentioned, Peter is essentially saying those things are artificial. Those things aren't real. He's saying you don't need to no longer live for what the rest of the Gentiles live for in in the lust of their flesh. You need to live for the will of God. You spent enough of your past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. You've lusted enough. You've been drunk enough. You've caroused enough. You've chased enough false gods. Because listen, all those things are a cheap imitation of what you get in the real thing in Jesus Christ. That's the idea. And so the, the will of the Gentiles is the pursuit of artificial pleasure through carnality, immorality, and idolatry. The will of God is the pursuit of authentic pleasure through finding yourself, your purpose, and your mission in life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, I read Hebrews 12, verse 2, which said, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising his shame, and who has now sat down at the right hand of the Father. I want to ask you a question. Do you think that when Jesus ascended to the throne room of heaven and sat at the right hand of his father, having all angels and principalities and powers made subject to him, do you think that he regretted setting his face toward Jerusalem? No. Y'all, in the same way, when you and I experience ultimate resurrection and ultimate glory and we get to see God for who He is, and we get to see His infinite beauty and excellence, His glory, and then not only do we get to see it, we get to experience it and enjoy it and ultimately reflect it. I will tell you, not one of us will regret setting our face toward enduring hardship and living a new life and saying no to all of the cheap imitations of glory that the world has to offer. And so Peter's message is leave all that stuff in your former life behind. That stuff is the product of the sinful lusts and cravings of an unregenerated heart. And I think Peter would even say this, that if God gives you ten more years, give all ten for the sake of the gospel. If he gives you ten more months, give all ten for the sake of the gospel. If he gives you ten more minutes, give those ten minutes for the sake of the gospel. I said it a few weeks ago, I'll say it again. Robert Murray McShane said, if I had a thousand lives, I'd give every one of them to Jesus Christ. And I think that's the message that Peter would say to us from these two verses. All right, and then let's look at number three. Be resolved to endure hostility for the sake of the gospel. Be resolved to endure hostility. He says, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Speaking evil of you. First century Rome was not so different than the way our culture is today. Essentially, people don't really care so much about the God that you worship or the religion that you're a part of. All right? I mean, we're, we're, a, we're a, a, a society of plurality. All right? You can worship this God or that God. You can worship no God. It doesn't really matter. 
The only time that it matters is that if you want to stand on some absolute, irrefutable truth and you're willing to stake a claim that I'm wrong and you're right. That, that's when it really gets to be a pickle. And that's what happened with Christianity. That's what happened with the gospel and its progress is that first century Rome was fine with people worshiping Jesus. But as soon as Christians said that Jesus Christ is Lord, the emperor is not Lord, that the gospel is the way uh, to which you can achieve eternal life and ultimate pleasure, and these other ways are nothing but artificial imitations, that's when trouble happened. Because, you know, Phil and I were looking at this passage on Monday. And, and, and if you think about it, guys... Um, they're thinking it's strange that you don't run with them. Like, they're wanting you to run with them. Peter is presupposing that Christians are being invited to go to the gladiator games with non-Christians. That Christians are being invited to go to these drinking parties with non-Christians. Hey, come along with us. Join us in this. And, and what's going on here is the Christians are saying, no, we're, we're not going to go. And they said, well, why aren't you going to go? Don't you want to experience pleasure? This is fun. This is enjoyable. This is awesome. We live in Rome. Come on, let's be Romans. And then ultimately the Christian is saying, listen, I, I, love, I love you guys and I, I want to be your friends, but I can't go because sin and idolatry is the centerpiece of that activity. I can't go there because Christ is the centerpiece of my life. And His glory and His holiness is the centerpiece of my life. And at that point, listen, at that point, they're offended. At that point, they're upset because you are telling them that their life is a life of emptiness, that their life is a life of idolatry, that they're wrong and you're right, and that's why they begin to speak evil of you. That's why they begin to malign you. That's why they begin to say names and, and call you things. And then that's why if they're your boss, they begin to treat you unfairly. And if they're your master, they begin to beat you. And, and if they're in any way can have an influence on you negatively, they will do it. Right. That's, the, that's the, the nature of what he says. You know, this, you need to understand that it's going to require an endurance of hostility if you want to be a Christian. And so I think the message that Peter wants to give us here is this. He says, don't quit that job because they make fun of you. Don't stop going to the gym because they turn their nose up at you. Don't drop that class because the professor mocks you. Don't stop speaking to your neighbor because he hates your Christian testimony. Endure all that for the sake of the gospel. All right, so those are the, those are the three principles that he wants us to live out right there. He wants us to suffer hardship, redeem your time, and endure hostility. If you look down, there are two more verses that are left. Those two verses um, have some very important truth. And I'm looking around at the crowd this morning, and I know just about everybody here. And uh, certainly there are some children who are not Christians, but I think probably everyone else in here professes Christ and, and believes the gospel. But I, I, want to, I want to emphasize the importance of believing the gospel rather than disbelieving it. I want to emphasize the importance of loving Christ and not rejecting him from these two verses, okay? Look at verse 5. He says, They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter is simply saying that for non-Christians, if they hate Christ and they cause Christians to suffer, because of their love for Christ, then there's going to come a day in which they're judged. Yeah. 
Just listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say about this. Just listen. He says, It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. John saw the very same revelation. John says, I saw a great white throne and Him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. My president in seminary told us, he said that uh, any gospel presentation that is met with resistance to that gospel and a rejection of it must be finalized with a warning that if you don't believe it, you'll be judged. You'll go to hell. And Peter is saying, as Christians, you guys live holy. Arm yourselves with the mindset of Christ and endure the kind of suffering that unbelievers are going to put on you Endure the kind of rejection that they have of your Savior. And you need to embrace it. Because right now, this is the worst hell you'll ever experience. But for them, this is heaven. Because one day they're going to give an account to their attitude toward Christ. Toward their attitude toward you. And their rejection of the way of salvation. And y'all, I just want to say this morning that if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you reject Christianity. If you're opposed to Christianity. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time for you to repent and come all the way to Christ because God will surely judge the living and the dead. Come to Christ today. Love Him, believe in Him, and you'll be forgiven of your sins. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Guys, this, this passage is not nearly as complicated as it may seem. Christians in the first century were very concerned about their loved ones. Their mom and their dad who, who professed to know Christ. They loved Christ and they waited for the return of Christ. And Christ didn't actually re- return the second time. And their mom and dad died before that happened. And they're like, well, we thought that Christ was going to return. And he was going to be triumphant. And he was going to save us. He was going to save them, but my mom and dad, they're dead now. And, and now, do they even have a way of salvation, or are they lost forever? And Peter say, no. They may have lost their life because of their faith in Christ. These persecutors against Christ and the Christian faith may have killed your mom and dad because they love Jesus, but don't worry about it. They were judged according to men in the flesh, but they're going to be alive according to God in the Spirit. They will have eternal life. And Paul gives us very clear definition of what that looks like listen to what it looks like 
He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who've fallen asleep, lest your sorrow as others have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And Paul adds, comfort each other with these words. And so, Christian, you need not fear death. If you die before Jesus returns, all right, you are ultimately going to be lifted up and ascended with Christ when he does return. There will be a trumpet sound. You will be elevated out of the ground. Your spirit will meet your body and you will forever dwell with your Savior who you live for, who you endured hardship for, who you redeemed your very life for, and who you endured hostility for. And it will be a glorious thing. It will be an amazing thing. And you will experience infinite glory with him. Amen?